If you're curious to engage with a lot of the topics we explore on the podcast in more creative and embodied ways, we welcome you to join us in Alchemize, our 10-week audio-based program of daily imagination practices intended to disrupt status quo ways of thinking, sensing, relating, and being. To be honest, without any grant support for our show right now, and we did just get turned down by several mainstream environmentalism philanthropies, this program and our Patreon are our primary means of supporting our labor for these free podcasts right now. We really want to remain untethered to corporate interests, and every small contribution to our Patreon or enrollment in our program Alchemize helps to ensure that we can continue producing these vital conversations that feature voices and perspectives often sidelined from mainstream media. So if you value our work and want to dive deeper with us, join us in Alchemize today at greendreamer.com slash alchemize and join our Patreon starting at just $3 at patreon.com slash greendreamer. Thank you so, so much for however you were able to support our work during these critical times. We are so deeply grateful. Green Dreamer is supported by our listener patrons. And to be really honest, I can really use your direct support during this time. Please, of course, do take care of yourself and your loved ones first. But if you are able to become a patron starting at just $2 per month, you can head to greendreamer.com support to learn more. And thank you so, so much to our existing patrons. It really helps a lot. So, you know, man at some stage realized that honeybees produce honey and wax, of course, and the other bees don't. That's why I think initially they they became kept, managed, cared for, and ultimately farmed. There's more research out there about honeybees than there is about any other insect, I think. And I think it's because also that they can be transported to where the crops are grown. So they've ended up like a monocrop themselves in a way, That was Bridget Strawbridge Howard, a bee advocate, wildlife gardener, and author of the new book, Dancing with Bees, which is a charming and eloquent account of rediscovering and reconnecting with the natural world. This episode is truly a poetic one, I think, and I really recommend finding a quiet space just to take it all in. You're going to hear about all the numerous different and unique species of bees here on Earth with us today, besides the honeybee that we tend to focus on when talking about the importance of bees and pollinators, how in order to uphold our industrialized monoculture food systems, we've also had to exploit honeybees as monocultures why beekeeping or supporting our local beekeepers shouldn't be viewed as the way to go about bee and pollinator conservation and why we have to look at it a lot more holistically and more. Green Dreamer, if you're ready, take a deep breath and let's dive in. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast exploring our paths to ecological balance, intersectional sustainability, and true abundance and wellness for all. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe, and together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word. So if I think back to when I was a child, I was hugely influenced by books. I read the Little House books, you know, the Little House on the Prairie, and I wanted to be Laura. So those those had a, 
a great impact on me as a child and also pretty much everything by Gerald Durrell and it's the Gerald Durrell books that opened up the the wonderful world of, of the animal world to me and and then I lost all of that over the years like you do and it was about oh 15 years ago in my mid 40s where I literally had a eureka moment I was walking across the Malvern Hills the, the hills they're amazing hills in the, the Midlands, basically, in England. And I was walking across on my way to work, and I suddenly realized, with a shock, that I didn't know any of the trees I'd just walked past, and I didn't recognize any of the wildflowers, and I didn't know anything about the birdsong or the bees. So that's kind of where my reconnection began. I'm curious, what is it about bees that spoke to you specifically? You started going down this rabbit hole of learning about your native trees, wildflowers, different plants, different insects, animals. Why did you focus specifically on bees? Yeah, there was a reason, actually. It's because at the time, at exactly the same time that I became re-aware, sort of my, my awareness was suddenly sparked again. That was the time that I was reading all these awful apocalyptic headlines about the disappearance of the bees, especially in in America, honeybees I'm talking about here, about colony collapse disorder, CCD. So I was worried then. I had I had just around then set up an environmental charity because on the back of me suddenly noticing all these things again myself, I wanted to share all of this newfound knowledge with other people. And I'd set up an environmental charity called The Big Green Idea with a lot of other, with friends and volunteers. And I was focusing on, oh, so many of the big issues like deforestation and climate change and waste, but also little things like the impact that your choices of skincare, lotions and potions and washing up liquids could have on the environment as they drained away. And one of the big issues that I was aware of because of the headlines was colony collapse disorder, bee decline. And I think like everybody else at the time, I was really concerned at first from a human-centric Point of view. So I was thinking, goodness me, you know, if, if the bees go, what about the human food chain? And so two things happened. First of all, I started to look into this in more detail and realized that it was not all about honeybees, that there were another 20, 25,000 different species of bee on the planet and that they were also in danger, suffering for different reasons. And secondly, I started to become more concerned for the bees themselves you know, when I looked into way, ways, the ways that they were or are still farmed, in effect, rather than cared for, my, my focus shifted. And I started to watch then the bees in my own back garden more. I, I was more interested. And then I'm, I, can't, I couldn't tell you sort of exactly when, but at some stage, and it's because of their behavior, when I started to notice how different they all were, I became obsessed with them, I guess. I started to yeah, it just took up my whole time looking at watching and noting down the behavior of the bees in my back garden. So it sounds like your shift from this more anthropocentric view of bees and their role in supporting human populations and our human health, your shift from that to being more ecocentric and just caring for them and their own intrinsic value it exactly. sounds like that really sparked this great curiosity for you that led you to just want to like get to know them and learn their behaviors, observe them and learn everything you can. 
and as I watched them, the more I watched them, I started to become aware that they, they actually have different characters. I mean, they really do. And I started to, I mean, I do, I have favorites, <laughs> shifts all the time, but just to give you an example. So I was living on the Malvern Hills in a little house that backed onto the hills. And at the end of my little path, I have a patch of, um, or had a patch of dwarf comfrey. And I noticed, so there were bumblebees and I knew what they were. And, and then I started to notice a particular bee or two particular bees, a little ginger bee and a little black bee that buzzed around really frantically and they had great big long tongues sticking out in front of them and they had a different buzz so it's like gosh you know instead of the really deep deep buzz that you get with a bumblebee they were very buzz, buzz. and these were I soon discovered hairy footed flower bees and you have flower bees you know flower bees their scientific name is anthropora and these are anthropora promepes the hairy footed flower bee but you get them all over the world, not just in, in England. The males are incredibly territorial. So they have hairy feet and they zip around the patches of flowers, guarding them so that they'll sort of bash into a great big bumblebee because they're quite small bees, bash a bumblebee off their patch. So they're keeping the patch for their females, which are the black bees. And then I watched them a pair mating, not then, but a couple of years later, and noticed that the male actually strokes the female's antennae with his feet, his hairy feet, as they're mating, wafting his pheromones around. So they, they have very different characters, these hairy-footed flower bees, and, and so do many others as well, you know, not just the bumblebees and the – they're solitary bees, right. the hairy-footed flower bees, which that's another whole topic, that, you know, the difference between honeybees, bumblebees, and solitary bees, and that's what I've explored, so – this all must be really fascinating to observe and learn about, especially considering that there are at least 20,000 species of bees with us on Earth today. And yet with this, most of us still really only think about our honeybees when we talk about bees. So maybe we just touched on this, but what are your thoughts on where this dominant view came from? And what are some common misconceptions you'd like to dismantle? Okay, well, I think that the honeybee thing is it's something that frustrates me terribly because whenever I say, people say, what do you do? I say, I talk about bees. And they say, oh, I know a beekeeper. I think, oh, it's not just honeybees. But I think it's, it's a couple of things. Obviously, more recently, the media have focused on honeybees because it has been thought that they are the most important pollinators on the planet. That's because people keep them. It's because they can be managed and kept in hives and this has been going on for thousands of years. So, you know, man at some stage realized that honeybees produce honey and wax, of course, and the other bees don't. That's why I think initially they, they became kept, managed, cared for, and ultimately farmed. There's more research out there about honeybees than there is about any other insect, I think. And I think it's because also that they can be transported to where the crops are grown. So they've they've ended up like a monocrop themselves in a way. And I think people have just lost sight, as they do, of the fact that there are other bees in the same way as we have, say, monocrops. We, we grow, I don't know how many crops, what, what the, the numbers are for the main crops that are grown for humans to eat. But we forget all of the diverse crops that we used to grow. So we, we focus on rice and wheat and oats and forgetting some of the, the lesser known, more 
old oh, I can't think of another way to describe them, but the old fashioned crops, you know, the, the, the crops that our ancestors grew. And I think that's what's happened with bees. Why do you think it is more important than ever today to dismantle those views that the media created for us to be able to see past that? Well, I think with bees, the same reason as it's important that we start going back to growing more diverse edible crops, that we don't hone in on just this one species, whether it is a plant or a pollinating insect, but also for their intrinsic value, because they are all so important, because we, we have no idea really what if some of these, you know, if a, an obscure and little known bumblebee becomes extinct, what else unravels because of that? And we don't know, because we've been so focused on the on this, what we think is the bigger picture, you know, the pollinating of human crops. But there are entire ecosystems that don't rely on honeybees that are in danger of collapsing if we allow these other bees to disappear on our watch. We seem to be going on this ever inward spiral of losing diversity and we need to be increasing. That needs to be an outward spiral instead. So we increase biodiversity, diversity of plants and pollinators and, and all other animals rather than just relying or focusing on a few. So I'm, I'm not a great one for sort of species specific conservation where, where vast amounts of money and effort are thrown into conserving just one species. I'd rather that we, we adopted a more holistic approach and, and looked at expanding this incredible diversity we have mm. on, on the planet. If that makes sense. Yeah. So it sounds like it's really important for us when we're talking about bee conservation to remember that this is also a conversation about biodiversity as a whole, rather than just honeybees, for example, because when we only focus on these few species, it doesn't really address the underlying problem of us really homogenizing our food sources, having less agrobiodiversity, therefore really relying on a few species of bees rather than supporting all of these different species that exist, including the native bees that we don't know a lot about. Exactly, exactly that. And I mean, we're talking bees here, but if you go further out, flies, flies are incredibly important pollinators. And I've read research recently that I had no idea about this up until a few years ago, but flies, they fly at times of day and in weathers that bees won't fly. They they are more likely to pollinate plants that grow in woodland edges or dark, damp areas or in more extreme climates. So it's it's even it's not even just bees. So I think we've we've got to rapidly change our perception of it being all about the honeybee to I think we're now starting to think, yeah, it's all about bees, but actually other pollinators, the other pollinators too. Right. Yeah. There's always a bigger picture to think about. And this might be a stupid question, but are honeybees the only ones that have hives? So all of these other wild bees and native bees out there, they don't necessarily have a hive or a place where they can collect all the honey? Okay, that's a really good question. So it is only honeybees that make and store large amounts of honey. There are about 500 species of stingless bees that also store honey. But bumblebees and solitary bees don't, not in quantities. Well, solitary bees don't store honey at all. So honeybees live in hives or colonies. 
And I think that the best way to to answer that question is to say that honeybees and bumblebees are both social bees. Mm. So so out of these 20, 25,000 different species of bee, I think there are only nine, that's the correct, only nine different species of honeybee. And there are about 250 species of bumblebee and the rest are solitary apart from 500 or so species of stingless bee, which are also social. So honeybees and bumblebees are social creatures. They're social insects. And that means that they live in colonies. And they live in a colony where there are overlapping generations. So so there are adults alive within this colony at the same time as the young. So that's one thing that defines a social bee or a social insect. And the other thing is they have a hierarchy or like a caste system. So with honeybees and bumblebees, you get a queen and you get female workers and you get males. Males are sometimes known as drones. The other very important thing about these types of social bees is that they share the care of the young or the brood. So there is there is cooperation within the colony. Now, honeybees, people think that they live in hives. So a hive, a hive is a man-made structure to house a colony of bees between, oh, I don't know, 20, 30, 40, even 50,000 bees in one hive. But they could just as easily choose to go and build their nest, their colony in the hollow of a tree, mm. which you would refer to as a hive. But always what the honeybees are doing, and the clues in the name, is they are gathering nectar and turning it into honey, which they store. And the thing that the honeybees do is they store the honey so that they can use it over winter and at times when there's not much in bloom, when they can't collect much. So honeybees store honey for themselves and we take it. That's, that's, that's what we've been doing for many, many thousands of years. Bumblebees don't actually store large amounts of nectar. They certainly don't turn it into honey in the way that honeybees do. And a bumblebee, bumblebee colony would be, you'd get between 50 and maybe 400 bumblebees at any one time in an active colony. And they don't live in hives. Nobody keeps bumblebees in hives. They make their nests under compost bins or under tussocky grass or beneath walls or basically anywhere where you might have had an, a rodent living before. They love making their nests in abandoned rodents' nests. They're, they're also social, but I, you kind of think of honeybees are perennials. Mm. A honeybee colony keeps on going and going and going, so you don't have a die-off over winter. Whereas with bumblebees, they're annuals. So they, at the height of their colony, of the colony's activity, you know, in the middle of the summer, there might be up to three, four hundred bumblebees. But once they've reproduced new daughter queens and, and males, these leave the colony and they mate and they either go into hibernation or they start new colonies. But everything back inside the nest dies out. So, whereas, but that doesn't happen with a honeybee. Mm. Uh, it's very different. And then solitary bees are a whole different kettle of fish because solitary bees have no hierarchy, no queen. Where do you get a queen 
honeybee and a queen bumblebee, you don't get queen solitary bees. You just get adult females and adult males. They mate. That's the only interaction they ever have with others of their species. And then the females are then on their own, single adult female. And she might be burrowing into the ground to make her nest or using a cavity in a wall or a bee hotel, as they're often referred to, a bee nesting box. And what they do, the adult solitary bees, is they they collect pollen and stuff it into a, a little cell, lay an egg, and then they seal that cell. And they might do this again up to about 30 times. And then the adult dies. So she's not alive to see her offspring when they hatch out. And the, the eggs when they hatch out and become grubs or larvae, then munch on the pollen, go through various growth stages, and then they pupate and they stay at their pupil stages often for 10 months or so until the following year when they hatch out. Mm-hmm. So they're very life cycles. That, that's, that's, it's really hard to put in a nutshell, actually, especially without <laughs> grass. My gosh. But, but does, does that make sense to you? Yeah. I certainly did not know all these differences existed. So I really appreciated that breakdown. It was super helpful. And I'm sure we have so much more to learn. And I highly encourage our listener to follow you and to learn more from you and check out your book, Dancing with Bees, as well. I guess it's just kind of sad to think about how the reason that we've been able to exploit honeybees for our food system is because they live in these hives that are centrally located that we can then manage and take around wherever we need them. So it's kind of for their utilitarian value. And the reason that we focus so much money and attention on honeybee conservation is also because of this utilitarian view of them. Oh, yeah, you've got it got it in one there. It's, I think one of the saddest things is that our concern for honeybees stems not out of, of their intrinsic value or their their value to to ecosystems but their value to us as pollinators of the human food crops yeah so that that saddens me deeply and i'm really surprised that you mentioned there's only nine species of honeybees out of the twenty thousand plus yeah yeah i know and there are subspecies as well and of course with honeybees as, as i explained earlier you know when you get a colony of honeybees there are tens of thousands of them Right. in the colony. And it's the other bees that we know so little about. Yeah. But the other bees, interestingly, they are also exploited. You know, I, I don't use that word lightly in the same way as honeybees often are. So bumblebees are now bred for their ability to, to pollinate things like tomatoes. So take a tomato, a tomato flower. It's a yellow flower and it's, it's tight shut. You can't see the pollen inside it. Now, honeybees haven't got a clue what to do to reach the pollen in a tomato flower. And most solitary bees don't know. Some do, but most don't. Bumblebees have worked out how to get this this pollen. And they do this by doing something called buzz pollination or sonication. And the way they do it, if you picture the, the yellow tomato flower, which most people will be able to picture. And then huge bumblebee flies along and she wraps herself around it. She grasps the the tomato flower. Then she does this incredible thing. She disconnects the flight muscles inside her thorax Mm -hmm. and she then vibrates them. So without flapping her wings, she's vibrating her flight muscles 
and she vibrates until they reach about 400 hertz. And at that moment, the tomato flower opens and the pollen explodes out of the tomato flower onto the abdomen, the underneath of the bumblebee. So that's how plants like tomatoes get cross-pollinated. This is something terribly important about bumblebees. And because we know this, of course, we use it, we, we, we exploit it. So bumblebees are bred in Eastern Europe. And there was a time, it has now stopped, where they were being shipped, these Eastern Europe bred bumblebees, out to America, also to the, to the UK. But the consequences have been dire because they brought disease with them. And that they were sent out to, I, I don't know whether it would be, I think it's the West Coast of America where you would have vast acres and acres of polytunnels and glass houses and grow things like, like tomatoes and blueberries and so on and so forth. And the bumblebees were taken out there to pollinate these plants on an agricultural scale. And then because they can't be shipped back and because they can't be released because they're non-native, they are then um, or were destroyed. And then the, the final sting in the tail is that many of them escaped. And you think, yay, thank goodness. But they escaped with their diseases. Mm. And there's one disease or a few diseases, but one in particular that is thought to be responsible for almost wiping out one of your most common bumblebees in the west coast a bumblebee I, I don't know because it couldn't cope with this disease that was brought in by the import of bumblebees so the imports have stopped now but we do have a tendency as human beings it's yeah to take 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 without thinking about the consequences we've learned now from from what's happened with colony collapse disorder and people have learned that it's not good to import these bumblebees from eastern europe anymore you know that has stopped but it's a tragedy it's tragic that we we don't think about the consequences um, right so sorry well, very depressing but <laughs> no and we're going to go into solutions so that's going to be at the very end but i'm aware that like we mentioned earlier in the united states honey bees are transported all over the country during different seasons to help pollinate our different agricultural monocultures for fruits nuts like almonds and etc so i guess my question is is the reason why we have to transport these honeybees and even breed the bumblebees, is the reason why we have to do this because our food system does not honor what is native to each bioregion? So like, I'm assuming that within any native bioregion, if we're really eating whatever is available in these ecosystems, then those species of plants and fruits and et cetera may be naturally pollinated by the native pollinators there. But because we have a food system that is mostly reliant on crops that we brought in that aren't really native to wherever they're grown. So they may be locally grown, but they may not be natively grown. And therefore, the native pollinators may not know to pollinate them. Or can you kind of expand yeah. upon this idea or... Let me know if I'm completely off base there. No, you're, you're right on track. I mean, honeybees, by the way, are not native to North America. They were introduced some 400 years ago. So, yeah, it is because the two are now so inextricably linked, these monocrops and the honeybees or the bumblebees or the solitary bees that are relied upon to pollinate them. So with you mentioned the almond orchards and 
the almond orchards, the, the valleys, the California valleys where the almonds now grow, used to be rich, fertile, diverse landscapes with many of their own local native solitary bees. And these have all been wiped out now because, so you've got the almond crops, but it is such a monoculture that nothing is allowed to grow now beneath those almond trees. So there is nothing left for the local pollinators. And now that that there are problems with the honeybees, which there are, it's not the the problem, the, the colony collapse disorder issue seems to have abated a little bit, but there are still problems. But there's no plan B because the native pollinators have gone. So, so what you're saying is right. People are now growing crops wherever they want to because they can bring in the, the non-native honeybees and many non-native, you get squash bees and alfalfa bees, the solitary bees. So yeah, that's that's the problem is we, we're not honouring our native species and our native plants. We're not leaving our native plants and our le- native pollinators to do their own thing anymore. So given the food system that we have already created today and keeping in mind that we may have already wiped out certain native pollinators wherever we are, what are your thoughts on where we can go from here? So what are some practical alternate ways that we can move our current food system into one that can actually help to conserve and enrich biodiversity and support the populations or even help to bring back these different native bees and other pollinators? Yeah, well, I think the only way forward, and it's it's not going to be pain-free, is a return to small-scale farming, small holdings, people growing their own. And only if we can, I don't know how you get from A to B, that's the problem, because there's these vast landscapes of monocultures now. But, but if people can gradually work just from small beginnings, and again, this spiraling out, I think that is the only way forward, small scale, organic, or at least pesticide free farming and people growing their own crops. I mean, we we have here in the UK, we have an allotment. My husband, Rob, and I have an allotment. This is kind of like a little plot. And they're quite a big deal over here. And councils will rent out little bits of land to anyone who wants to grow their own vegetables. So we have a lot of people growing their own food here throughout the year. And we do still have quite a few small scale farms. And I just think that is the way forward to, to start becoming more self-sufficient locally. As we speak, we, the, the world is experiencing the phenomena that, that is and has been coronavirus. And I don't know about over there in North America, but over here, people are just, everybody is growing their own food again and realizing that we need to be more self-sufficient and we need to be able to feed ourselves on a local level, local scale, and not rely on these great big monocultures. Because when systems fail, then that system, that great big industrialized agricultural monosystem fails. It fails. It can't, it can't survive. I was just checking an heirloom seed website. The nonprofit is led by one of our past guests, Sean Sherman, but I was going to purchase some heirloom seeds, but they said they're temporarily stopping new orders because they've been overwhelmed with orders. So I would assume that maybe the same thing has been going on here in the United States also, which would be definitely a good sign that this is 
serving as a wake-up call that we really have to build more community-based local self-reliance. And finally, before we go into the action steps we can take to turn that vision into reality, I wanted to ask, a lot of times people say we should support our local beekeepers by purchasing honey or, or beeswax from them. Is there validity to that as a way to really promote pollinator conservation? Or what sorts of additional questions should we be asking? The media have talked a lot about supporting beekeepers as a way to help bees. People have been encouraging more people to keep bees as well. Over here, we have bees being kept on roofs and businesses and supermarkets and things all over cities. But the thing is, is that if you are going to buy honey and wax, it is absolutely important to support existing local beekeepers. But I think there's this is a misconception. People seem still to think that we can save bees by keeping more bees and by supporting beekeepers. But the thing is that keeping honeybees is no more going to help the problem with bee decline than keeping chickens would help birds Mm. uh, in decline. That's a good way Um, to put it. Yeah, honeybees are just one species and we need to care um, for them as well. You know, they're all as important as each other. But I think the focus, I'd love for the focus to shift towards our existing native bees so that so that we don't lose them whilst we're concentrating and focusing so much on the honeybees that we lose that we lose the other bees that, that are so terribly important locally. And finally, I'd love to go into our solutions. And there are really two sides of this that I'd love for you to touch on. So the first one is, how do we cause less harm to our native wild bee populations? And finally, how can we help to regenerate bee-friendly habitats for the bees and pollinators that are native to our unique bioregions? Possibly the answer to that is really about getting to know our native bees not, I'm not talking about identifying them and going on courses to learn how to, to tell which is which, but becoming more aware of the fact that they do exist. And that there are, I think you have the Xerxes Society in North America, which is a brilliant resource to find out who are your native bees and what are your native plants and, and basically to grow more of your native plants for your native pollinators. And, uh, and again, that's, I think that's how you can help native pollinators is by providing the plants that they thrive on. Because with plants, it's not just a case of one plant suits all bees. Well, it's not one bee pollinates all plants. They, they vary so enormously in size, these bees. And some of them are way, way, way smaller than a grain of rice. And then you go all the way through to your greatest, the giantest bumblebees, or there are some solitary bees even bigger. So grow native plants for your native pollinators. Working hard every day and night Trying to make the world peaceful And we won't give up without a fight We're gonna help those who are in need Yes, we believe they can succeed Overcoming obstacles every day You'll be okay, you'll guide the way Don't matter, big or small, we're gonna do it all That's who we are, yeah
What's an uplifting social media account or publication you follow or a book that's been really profound for you? I use Twitter a lot. And one of my favorite accounts is at Mugwort Dreamer. And this is Rachel Corby, who's written a number of books that I just, oh my goodness, they just inspire and uplift me. And her first one was called The Medicine Garden. And her most recent book is a book called Rewild Yourself, Becoming Nature. And also, oh my gosh, Robin Wall Kimmerer, Braiding Sweetgrass. So the book, Braiding Sweetgrass, is is the book I would save in fire. It just inspires me so, so much. What do you tell yourself to stay positive and inspired? That we can all make a difference. Mm. We can all make a difference. I just tell myself again and again to focus on the things I, the issues I understand and feel passionate about. And that just keeps me feeling positive. What's one thing you're working on right now for your health? Walking more. I've always enjoyed walking, but I am consciously and deliberately walking further now. And the other thing I'm doing is, and again, this is something that I was inspired to do by reading Rachel Corby's book, is to take my shoes off more often so I can actually feel and connect with the earth beneath my feet. Mm. So I do this deliberately now. I try every day, at least once, to take my shoes and socks off and stand or walk in the grass. What are you working on right now to elevate your positive impact for our planet? Trying to think more holistically, consciously aiming to take less and give back more. And what makes you most hopeful for our planet at the moment? The fact that people, more people than ever before, are noticing and appreciating the natural world and the plants and animals that we share this planet with. To learn more and stay updated on Bridget's work, you can head to www.bestrawbridge.blogspot.com and that's B-E-E strawbridge.blogspot.com. Be sure to also check out her book, Dancing with Bees, that you can find at chelseagreen.com, one of our favorite publishers. And you can also follow her on Twitter at B underscore strawbridge. I'll have all of this linked in the show notes as well that you can find at greendreamer.com. Bridget, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your immense wealth of wisdom with us. What closing encouragement or words would you like to share with us as Green Dreamers? To get out into your own back garden or yard or onto your local patch and get to know the wildlife that you share your space with. 